Well, let's continue in worship this morning by opening God's Word to Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. Acts 4, 23 through 31. Here this morning, the reading of God's Word. When they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. As we begin, let me give you a brief Recap of what we have covered so far in the book of Acts. In chapter 1, verse 8, we saw a restatement of the Great Commission of Matthew chapter 28. The risen Jesus told his disciples to go and make more disciples. Very good. To go and get him the nations which are already his by virtue of his universal authority. Because of Jesus' perfect obedience, obedience unto death, even death on a cross, God has highly exalted Jesus, gave him the name that is above every name, and now Jesus, the God-man, is heir of all things, which includes all the nations of the world. As my dear brother Lucas Bishop said wisely to me one day during one of our fellowship meals, and I quote, Missions is about gathering for Jesus what's already his. Missions is about gathering for Jesus what's already his. I could not have said it better. Then in chapter 2 and 3, we saw supernatural confirmations of the rule and power of the risen and exalted Christ. First, in the coming of the Holy Spirit during Pentecost, and then in the healing of the crippled man. And everything was going well until we get to chapter 4. For the first time, we see the apostles facing hostility and from none other than the Jewish temple authorities. This hostility, moreover, stands as the ultimate proof that their religious system was about to come to a violent end. And we will see that in greater detail when we come to chapter 5. This morning, we find ourselves on the other side of the first wave of persecution. The Jewish temple authorities are done questioning the apostles, at least for now, and they are reunited with the rest of the people of God. 
And what the book of Acts wants us to see is truly amazing. In front of us this morning is a majestic picture of living faith. If you have ever wanted to see what living faith as opposed to dead faith looks like, then look no further than Acts chapter 4, verse 23 through 31. This is how faith sounds. This is faith speaking, or better yet, singing. And as we are about to see a living faith, the type of faith that overcomes the world is a faith with an anchor. Or to say it negatively, faith is not wishful thinking or just a cheap form of optimism. Well, what is it then? What is faith? Here's our starting point. Our starting point, a living faith rests upon a sovereign Lord. A living faith rests upon a sovereign Lord. When you take time to think about this, what we see here, it is truly impactful to know that as soon as the apostles were released from prison, they gathered with the rest of the believers, and the first two words that came out of their mouths in this first post-persecution meeting were sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. Unquestionably, a living faith must begin with knowing that God is God. But what does it mean when we say sovereign Lord? Here's what my study yielded this week. Notice that the ESV, if you're using the ESV, uses two words to describe God, namely sovereign Lord. So I wanted to know what the two words were used in the original Greek New Testament, and I was quite surprised by what I found. Actually, that's an understatement. I was shocked by what I found in the original Greek New Testament. In the original Greek, Luke did not use two words to describe God, but only one, despota. Does that sound familiar? Despota. We have an English word for it, despot. It would sound something like this, verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, despot, who made the heaven and the earth. Let me ask you this. Does that sound like a good word to you? Interesting, isn't it? That word certainly can have very bad connotations. One dictionary defined despot as, quote, a cruel and oppressive dictator, a tyrant. Obviously, many rulers and kings throughout history qualify as such. The word despot reminded me of the famous expression, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. But is that expression true? I don't think so. First of all, God is power, but he will never be corrupted. Second, God is absolute power, but he will forever be absolutely pure and holy. Therefore, that little expression only applies to the fallen realm of humans and only halfway for no human has ever had absolute power except one. Jesus of Nazareth, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. And that, by the way, leads us to the definition of sovereignty. Although I must add that sovereignty cannot be truly defined. The word definition 
by definition, means to place boundaries around a concept. For something to be defined, it needs to be placed within boundaries. And divine sovereignty, by definition, knows no what? Boundaries. But because we are confined to our own humanity, here's a simple definition of sovereignty. Supreme authority, full stop, no qualifications needed. That's sovereignty. Supreme authority, full stop, no qualifications needed. A living faith does not add qualifications to the sovereignty of the Lord. He simply is sovereign. In fact, I would take it as far as to say this. If your God is not sovereign, full stop, no qualifications needed, your faith is not truly a resting faith. The only way for your faith to find a resting place is for that place, for that object, to be sovereign, full stop, no qualifications needed. And this is the first critical lesson we learn about the nature of living faith from our brothers and sisters of the first century. Now remember the context. This gathering took place right after the apostles were released from jail, right after the first wave of persecution. And this is very instructive because from a human perspective, you would expect to see doubt, insecurity, and fear coming out of their mouths. But that is not what we see at all. Rather, the first thing they affirmed was sovereign Lord, you who possess all authority. What a testimony. What a picture of living faith. Immediately after suffering, they affirmed sovereignty. Now let us see the building blocks upon which their faith was built. Let us see how the sovereignty of the Lord and our faith relate in more specific ways. My approach will be as follows. I will try to explain how different facts of sovereignty act as anchor points for our faith. And I will add some dangers we need to watch for associated with each point. So here's fact number one. Fact number one, divine sovereignty is displayed in universal creation. Divine sovereignty is displayed in universal creation. The second half of verse 24 says this, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Embedded in their prayer was the fact of creation. Did you notice that? Was the fact of creation. Interesting. After commanding Israel to keep the Sabbath day holy in the Ten Commandments, God said in Exodus 20, verse 11, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Embedded in the Ten Commandments is the fact of creation. Thank you. Interesting. When the Jews return to Jerusalem from Babylonian exile, they confessed their sins to God as a people and said, You are Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. Nehemiah 9.6 Embedded in their plea for forgiveness was the fact of creation. One of you is catching on. Very good. When Hezekiah, the king of Judah received a letter from the king of Assyria, threatening them with destruction. Hezekiah prayed, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven 
and earth, 2 Kings 19.15. Embedded in his prayer for protection was the fact of creation. Now it's two of you. Very good. But why? Why? Why is the fact of creation so prominent? You read through the Psalms and it's everywhere. Well, here's the application. Here's the application. A living faith submits to the creator-creature distinction. A living faith submits to the creator-creature distinction. There are two critically important truths being presented here. As I tell you what they are, please notice where I place the emphasis as I say them. First truth, God created heaven, earth, sea, and everything in it. Did you notice the emphasis? Here's the second truth. God created heaven, earth, the sea, and everything in it. Did you notice the difference? I was pretty intentional about it. In the first instance, we are speaking about who created in the second instance, we are speaking about what was created. Who is the creator? You know this. Okay, God, very good. God alone. What did he create? Reality. That word matters. God created reality. Only God can create true reality. We live in God's world, don't we? So here are a few dangers to our faith. First, beware of counterfeit doctrines of creation. Notice what the believers don't say in their prayer. They did not say, you alone are God who through the process of evolution, which took millions upon millions of years, created heaven and earth and everything in it. No. Rather, they took Genesis 1.1 and left those words intact. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Call me simple-minded. That's okay. I see no need to tamper with those simple yet life-defining words. In fact, seeing the example of the Bible, it is safe to say that a weak doctrine of creation will almost inevitably weaken your faith. You can mark my words. I have seen it happen. Second, beware of counterfeit realities. Counterfeit realities. God created reality and we must accept that reality and live in it as God's creatures. We live in God's reality and we don't get to create our own. Counterfeit realities can indeed be very dangerous to our faith and the world. Take, for instance, pornography. And this insight, by the way, came after a brief conversation I had with my beautiful wife. She's pretty insightful. What does pornography do? How does it operate so effectively and devastatingly? It is very simple, actually. It convinces you that it is the real thing. That's what it does. It tricks you. The evil of pornography is that it presents itself as a reality. But it is a counterfeit reality that only seeks to replace God's good and holy reality found only within the confines of marital union between one man and one woman. Pornography perverts and corrupts true God-made reality. 
And worst of all, people who fall for it end up creating their own little world in which they are happy, satisfied, and content. And the longer they live in this counterfeit reality, the less the need they have for living in God's true reality. And they stop losing interest in other people, in their marital union, in their wife or husband or friends, because this is all they need. It is a counterfeit reality. We need to be vigilant for the sake of our faith in Christ. We can't miss the fact that many of the new realities being promoted are nothing more than new towers of Babel through which man wants his complete independence from the creator. The problem of sin is that it seeks to destroy the creator-creature distinction. And now the creature wants to establish himself as God by creating his own world apart from the, the creator and his law. Sinners will find ways to rebel against the inescapable imprint of God in all creation and will seek to create their own reality by redefining it. Is that not what we're seeing? Sinners wanting to recreate reality. How do they do that? Well, through the redefinition of marriage. They don't want God's definition. They want to create their own. Family. They want to redefine the reality of family. Sexuality. They want to redefine sexuality, relationships, purpose, all of it, but it is all futility. Thus, we gain, we, we gain this insight to walk by faith means first and foremost to submit to God's reality. This is our Father's world. Now, connected to this is the second fact of sovereignty. Fact number two, divine sovereignty is revealed in ancient prophecy, verses 25 and 26 Sovereign Lord, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is a direct quotation from Psalm 2. In this psalm, we see a description of the reign and rule of God's anointed. The New Testament confirms that this is none other than Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. And this prophecy clearly reveals that to Jesus belong the nations and even kings, but they don't like him. Now, the interpretation of this prophecy is given in the next verses, so I just want to highlight who spoke these words. The first Christians, as they stood together after persecution, confessed that through the mouth of our father David, said by the Holy Spirit, this is a confession of faith in the divine inspiration of God's word. Yes, even the Old Testament. All of it was given by divine inspiration. The Bible has many human writers, but only one author, namely the Spirit of God. It was the Holy Spirit who spoke words of prophecy in the Old Testament, such as Psalm 2. This is the only explanation for its perfect accuracy. Only the one who can determine the future has the power and authority to guarantee it in words. So before we go into the interpretation of the prophecy, consider the application. A living faith believes that God has spoken authoritatively and sufficiently. A living faith believes that God has spoken authoritatively and sufficiently. If you were to open your Bibles to Psalm 2 right now, you would not find it anywhere written that the Holy Spirit spoke those words. Why is that important? 
It is important because it reveals that the first Christians believed all Scripture was inspired by God, whether it says so explicitly or not. And since it is inspired by God, breathed out by Him, then it is authoritative and sufficient in all it says. And this is yet another aspect of God's sovereignty. Apologist Cornelius Van Til, in his introduction to B.B. Warfield's classic book, Inspiration and Authority of the Bible, said this, and I quote, If God is sovereign in the realm of being, He is surely sovereign in the realm of knowledge, end quote. Therefore, the Bible is not just generally trustworthy, since the Bible is the mind of God in written form. The Bible is therefore perfectly trustworthy. A living faith believes that true and proper knowledge of God, of self, of life, of the world is found in Scripture and Scripture alone because it is God's Word. There can be no proper knowledge of God or the self apart from God's written revelation. Consider this example. Why is it? that the nations that surrounded Israel in Old Testament times were in such absolute and utter darkness, doing abominable things and plagued with idolatry? Well, here's the answer. Only to Israel did God give his written revelation, to no one else. Only Israel could know the true God properly and understand the purpose of human existence properly. Why is it, moreover, that none of the great philosophical minds throughout the ages have ever been able to tell others the way of salvation. And yet, an uneducated man like Peter could, because Peter had God's written revelation. Now, in light of this, what are some of the dangers to faith? I'm just going to sum it all up in one, autonomous thinking. Autonomous thinking. You know what autonomy is, right? Yeah, autonomy, auto, self, nomi, from nomos, law, self-law. I'm going to interpret life and everything about it according to my own law. Autonomous thinking, this is to say non-biblical thinking. Few other things are as important to the Christian faith than for the believer to learn to submit all of his thinking to the authority and sufficiency of the Word of God. Because if God has spoken to us in this book, then our calling is to stop pretending that we can understand life, meaning, purpose, and God himself apart from this revelation. Sadly, sin is always pushing for the creature to become independent from the creator, even at the most fundamental level, the level of thought. Consider the example in front of us this morning. When these first Christians met and lifted up their voices to God, they didn't try to make sense of their circumstances, painful as they were, by mere speculation. If that were the case, then they would have reached some very troubling conclusions. Maybe they would have thought to themselves, well, I guess this is over. None of us want to go to jail. The temple authorities hate us. And we are creating way too much controversy. This Christianity idea is not going to work, guys. That's speculative, non-biblical thinking. Instead, what did they do? These Christians went straight to the word spoken by the Spirit in Psalm 2. And rather than speculating, they submitted their thinking. They submitted their thinking, their interpretation of the facts 
to God's wisdom and God's prophetic utterances. And they found the explanation and the meaning of their circumstances, even persecution, in God's sovereignty, as clearly seen in the next fact. Fact number three, divine sovereignty is manifested in historical fulfillment. Historical fulfillment. Verses 28, 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. The prophecy of Psalm 2 concerning King Jesus and his enemies was historically and actually fulfilled in the life and death of Jesus during the first century. More specifically, the prophecy was fulfilled in the evil plotting against Jesus on the part of the Jews and the Romans. The ones who are described in Psalm 2 as the ones gathered together plotting against God and his Christ were precisely the Jewish leaders along with Herod and Pontius Pilate. Now, when we get to Acts 13, if we ever do, and we dive into Paul's sermon, we will see the implications of Psalm 2 in light of the resurrection of Jesus, and this will open it up in amazing ways. We have much book of Acts left to cover. For now, just consider verse 28. They gather to do whatever the hand of God had predestined to take place. The real shock, brothers and sisters, is that the Jews and the Romans conspired against Jesus because God predestined them to do so. We could say it like this. Jesus died at the hands of evil men because God is sovereign over history. This is mind-boggling. I can put it this way. All of B.C. history, before Christ, history leading up to the coming of Christ, was about God raising up and tearing down nations for the expressed purpose of bringing his son into the world and putting him on a cross at the very hands of the nations he himself appointed for that very specific purpose so that through his son forgiveness of sins could be proclaimed throughout the world. Even though evil men killed Jesus, it was the will of the Father to crush him. Isaiah 53.10. Now consider the application of this fact to our faith. A living faith knows that all of history is in God's sovereign hands. Here's a question. If all of B.C. history was about Christ coming into the world, what about A.D. history? What about our history after Christ? I know of only one way to answer that question, and it is by asking another question. Is God still sovereign? Is God still in charge of all things and of all the nations? Is he in charge of what Russia is doing? Is he in charge of the Ukraine? Is he in charge of the U.S. and Canada and all the nations? Was his sovereignty confined to B.C. history only and A.D. history somehow unraveling on its own, unguided and without purpose? No. If B.C. history was centered on Jesus, A.D. history is also centered on Jesus. Consider 1 Corinthians verses 25 and 26. 
where we read about Jesus, for he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be defeated is death. What is Jesus doing right now? Is he taking a break? No. No, he's not taking a break. We learn as we go, right? We learn as we go. <laughs> that was perfect timing, though. He's not taking a break. He must reign. He must reign right now. Ephesians 1.22 says, And he, God, put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Brothers and sisters, I honestly don't think it is possible to read those statements and conclude that our history is meaningless and purposeless. As long as Jesus is on the throne at the right hand of the Father, then history will continue to have meaning, a meaning centered on Him. And this truly matters to our faith. In light of this, let me point out a few dangers to our faith. Here's the first one, deism. Have you heard of that word? D-E-I-S-M, deism. According to one theologian, he said this, deism is belief in a God who created but has no continuing involvement with the world and events within it. That is dangerous. In deism, God's rule and activity are confined exclusively to the heavenly places and effectively removed from human history. But nothing could be further from the truth. History our own history, as Acts 4, 27 and 28 make abundantly clear, is not a disconnected and random series of meaningless facts. History has a purpose because history is the work of God. Here's a second danger. Open theism. Open theism. What is open theism? The belief that God doesn't know the future. He learns what's going on in history along the way. If this is the case, you might as well give up all hope. The God of open theism is nothing more than a spectator of history rather than the God of history. The good news is that neither the indifferent God of deism nor the impotent God of open theism is the true God of heaven. At this point, let me briefly deal with a potential objection you might have. If God is indeed sovereign over all of history, why does anything we do matter? If God will accomplish his purposes, no matter what, then what's the point of doing anything? To that, I simply say this. It is because God is sovereign over all history that what we do matters. What's the alternative? A non-sovereign God? Is that what we want? A God who is not in charge? Because he is in charge, because he is sovereign, everything we do matters. Sovereignty does not eliminate meaning. It provides it. It is because God is sovereign over history that our lives matter, that people must repent, that your sanctification is good, that your marriage is holy, that your occupation is significant, that your suffering is purposeful, and that your prayers are answered. It is all because God is sovereign. He has supreme authority, and you can work with purpose. You can love with purpose. You can discipline with purpose, and you can even suffer with purpose because as long as Jesus is on the throne of heaven, our hope remains and everything matters. And this leads us to the final fact 
of sovereignty. Fact number four, divine sovereignty is continued in spiritual strengthening. Divine sovereignty is continued in spiritual strengthening. Verse 29 through 31, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Notice that the prayer begins with a request for what? Boldness. And ends with the granting of boldness. God's sovereignty continues to be manifested in the fact that throughout the ages, God has sustained his church. And the church is still around, growing and even flourishing because God is sovereign over her. On that day, as the disciples prayed to God, God granted them boldness. Boldness through the Holy Spirit because God loves his church. And the one who shed his blood for her on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ, now commands all things. Jesus still loves us, my friends. And no amount of immorality, corruption, war, hatred, and even death itself will be able to stand against the church. But it is within this context that we must also understand how this applies to our faith. Here's the application. A living faith understands its own weakness apart from the strength of the Lord. A living faith understands its own weakness apart from the strength of the Lord. In other words, to walk by faith is to walk in the awareness that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. That apart from him, we are not bold, but cowards. That apart from Jesus, we are not truth-tellers, but compromisers. Note that these Christians did not act as though it would be easy. They did not ignore the difficulties ahead. In fact, they even asked God to look upon their threats. They did not pretend to live in a fairy tale world. Thus, they also knew that boldness would be necessary, but that it could only come from the Lord. Like the first disciples, we too face many threats. We do. But God looks upon them and he's not impressed, nor is he nervous. If you and I are here this morning, as Christians, believers in Christ, it is only because God has been answering that prayer for more than 2,000 years. And he still does. So here, here's one danger to our faith. Oh, and we must be careful with this one. Self-reliance. Self-reliance. You know how self-reliance manifests itself in life? Lack of prayer. Lack of prayer. You must notice with me their affirmation of the sovereignty of God did not lead them to prayerlessness. The truth that God is sovereign does not mean we don't pray. Yes, he is sovereign, but we must ask the Lord for boldness in constant prayer. Listen, here's a personal confession. I don't want to live my faith in the Lord Jesus quietly, fearfully, shamefully, or compromisingly. I really don't. I don't want to end up like so many pastors out there who have given in to the course of this world and are now teaching contrary to Scripture just so that they can keep a job, be liked, remain popular, or avoid ridicule. And I hope you don't want that for yourself either. 
But also listen to this. Listen to this very carefully. No individual, no pastor, no church, and no denomination has orthodoxy guaranteed. None. I have seen too many leaders I used to trust, too many churches I thought to be strong, and even denominations I once considered trustworthy become gospel deniers. And I also know this, I am not above becoming one of them. Did you know that? I am not above becoming a compromiser. Neither are you. Neither are we. Just the other day, I told my wife, my biggest fear is to one day give in to compromise and become like one of those men that I no longer trust. The first believers prayed for boldness because they knew that apart from grace, they would not have had it. If we don't pray and walk in full dependence upon the Lord, who is to say we won't be swept away by every wind of doctrine? Only as we humble ourselves through prayer with the Lord will the Lord grant us boldness for his truth. So here's the conclusion. I know you guys are hungry, so we'll, we'll, we'll finish this. A living faith is certain, certain that nothing can or will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. A living faith is certain that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm going to invite you to read that verse later if you want on your own when you go home. And we read it a little bit during the worship time. Thomas Manton said, and I quote, true faith can draw gracious conclusions from the darkest events. True faith can draw gracious conclusions from the darkest events. Why such confidence? Why is faith like that? For the simple reason that God is God. He is and will always be our sovereign Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this simple yet important reminder of the nature of true living faith. Help us, Lord, to live by it. And to know that faith is not just wishful thinking or cheap form of optimism but that it is rooted in your sovereignty. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight and to learn what this means. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.